It is good to see y'all here on Father's Day. For all the fathers here this morning, happy Father's Day. For grandfathers, happy Father's Day, because I'm one of those. Um, we're going to continue in prayer this morning. First of all, for the Daniel family, as Neil has already prayed, but keep in mind the funeral for Trevor is tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. So if you can make that, I know the family would appreciate your presence there. If not, then be in prayer at that time. Next, we're going to be praying for another fellowship, Ridgecrest Baptist Church and Pastor Matt Beasley and his wife Valerie and their elders. We're going to be praying for an unreached people group. This is the Kazakh people in Kazakhstan. Population of about 12,199,000 and 0.1% are believers. And there's no, there's no active open evangelism, but it's through primarily house churches and the gospel is spreading, so we need to continue to pray for that. And those house churches are now under persecution from the government, so let's be praying for them in that. Finally, we're going to be praying for our fellowship, our pastor search process, our time this morning as we begin this study in the book of James. So join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, we do come before you this morning acknowledging your presence in this place because of who you are, not because of who we are. Father, you love us, and we thank you for that, and we worship you for that. Father, I pray this morning for the Daniel family, for Lynn, for Cam, for Ethan, for Mia, as they are grieving Trevor's death and yet celebrating his life with you at the same time. Father, I pray that you would provide the Daniel family comfort in this time of grief. Father, we also pray this morning and lift up Ridgecrest Baptist Church and Pastor Matt Beasley and his wife, Valerie. Father, first of all, I pray for Matt and Valerie's marriage, that it will be centered and focused on you, that their marriage would be sweet and rich, and that Matt's study this week has been invigorating, convicting, and burdening, so that as he stands this morning to deliver he can release the truth of your word and in some very real way release some of that burden having spoken your truth. Father, we also lift up the people in Kazakhstan, population of over 12 million. Father, we still have connections in Kazakhstan. This church has a long history of connection with Kazakhstan. <clears throat> Father, I pray that you would protect those folks, protect the church there and grow that church. <clears throat> Father, finally, I pray for our fellowship this morning, our, our pastor search process. I pray especially for the time this morning as we dig into the book of James. Father, I know that the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth of your word, keep me out of the way, knowing that the Holy Spirit will lead us. Father, we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, as I've said, as you've heard several times already, we're going to be beginning a book study this morning in the book of James. I actually preached a couple of sermons out of James back in January when Ben was sick with COVID. And although I had loved the book of James for a long time, I really fell in love with it again just in the spring. So I've wanted to continue that, and the elders agreed that we would do this next book study through the summer and through the first part of September. 
So I'm going to invite you to turn to the first chapter of James. And as you're turning, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first 11 verses. James 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to have this word from you to guide us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now the title of this book obviously comes from the man who put pen to paper. James, and he was referred to as James the Just. He was not only the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first century, he was also the half-brother of Jesus. In Matthew 13, 55, we see this. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we know who the author is. But what was his purpose? James' primary theme in this book is about living out one's faith on a daily basis. The theme is developed in a view of the social conflict between rich and poor and also the spiritual conflict between factions of the church. James rebukes his readers for their worldliness and challenges them to seek divine wisdom in working out these problems and getting right with God. So that's what we have to look forward to over the next several months. Now it's clear in the very first verse that the primary audience at the time of James's writing is the Jewish church that had been scattered by the dispersion because of the persecution. The 12 tribes in the dispersion is who the letter is to. While that is the primary audience, it is also clear to us today that God preserved this letter in his word for us to have today. So it's just as pertinent to us in 2021 as it was in the first century. This word is to help us order our lives, to live rightly, 
to be convicted of wrongs that we do and to be convicted of wrong focus. It's also to help us look like sheep. You've heard me say this before, so I'm going to repeat it again. James is not a rule book, R-U-L-E, as it is sometimes referred to. It is a wool book, W-O-O-L, because we are sheep in God's economy. He calls us sheep. Sheep have wool. So the book of James tells us what that wool is supposed to look like, what we're supposed to look like on a day-by-day basis. It's how we should walk, how we should talk, how we should handle the adversities of life. As I looked in this first passage, and one of the things that I've learned through the years with Ben is look for repeated words. I only found one word repeated, and that was the word faith. It appears twice in this passage. First of all, in verse 3, it says the testing of our faith. It, it refers to the testing of our faith. In verse 6, then, we must ask in faith. Both points to the ultimate direction toward God as we live out our lives. So, now let's begin to look at the specifics of this passage. Verse 1 tells us quickly who the author is, as we already established. But look how he introduces himself. He introduces himself as the servant of God and of Christ Jesus. Actually, he says the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse tells us a lot about James the just. He identifies himself as a servant of God rather than focusing on the, and the people of that day knew the obvious connection between James and Jesus. Okay. As we study, we see that he's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I would think, at least in part on the human side of me, that as he introduced himself, it might have been a temptation for him to say, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus. So it's kind of like, look at me. You know, I've, I've got a connection here, so that makes what I have to say a little more important. I mean, that's our human nature. That's what we would do. You know, most of us at some point or not, or, or some time or another, might add somebody's name, just dropping a name to get somebody's attention. Okay, I see a couple of smiles out there, so you're like, yeah, okay, I've done that. <clears throat> it's important to note that James did not do that. He simply said, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies his place rightly in the kingdom. Not by connection or a family tie that he could have drawn on. But he says very clearly, he is a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it sound like if we use that introduction today? Think about it. If I walked up to somebody and I said, hey, I'm Morris Bean. I'm a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a little bit of a different kind of introduction, I would think. But I think you can expect two very strong responses to that. A believer would be drawn immediately into a spiritual conversation. 
a non-believer would have one of two reactions. Either they would start asking questions or they would walk away. But clear. Okay, it wouldn't be a kind of hemming and hawing looking for something to say. It leaves no doubt in who we are and who we belong to. And that in itself is our very first challenge from the book of James. Think about how you come across to other people, even how you introduce yourself. It's important, or else God wouldn't have recorded it for us. Next, James identifies his primary audience as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And these are Messianic Jews, Jews who have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they've, scat they've been scattered due to the persecution of the first century church. These people, scattered throughout the known area, are very likely in small church house, or house churches, small groups. Outside of Palestine, hunkered down to some degree, but still very much present. They were poor, challenged, under persecution, and as seen by what James says throughout this letter, we will see in coming weeks, it is very real. It's not just an imagined persecution, it's very real. And how that's impacted them. There's been a movement of falling into worldly lifestyles in some of these folks. They have failed to put their faith into practice with the result that they have become double-minded in some ways. So James is drawing them back and he works masterfully to call these people back to their rightful place at the feet of Jesus. This call is for us today also in Greenville, Texas in 2021. It's real easy to get unfocused or focused on something else. So one question to consider then is this. Are we in a dispersion? Are we part of a dispersion? Have we been a part of dispersion in 2020? Everybody do this. Think about where we have been this last year. But surely we can see that in part by experiences in 2020 and the pandemic, we have been somewhat scattered. Who would have thought that our lives would have been disrupted the way they have been. Schools closing. Churches closing. Our government demanding that we wear masks or double masks. And there was valid reasons for that, but it had never happened before. Hunkering down in our homes. Ordering our groceries online and having them delivered to our door, but never more than, never closer than six feet to each other. In fact, they would many times drop them at the door, ring the doorbell, and then leave. Then we would go out. I'm specifically speaking of the Bean family. Then we'd go out and we'd get our groceries off the front step, and then we'd come in and put them up. We've met mostly, I say mostly, for a time. We met almost specifically virtually for our worship services. For the first couple of weeks, 
Ben was up here by himself in the conference room preaching to a computer and then those of us that had internet would, would tune in and watch him. We have poor internet where we live out in the country so Kendra and I would come up and sit in the parking lot and watch it in our truck. One Sunday morning Ben came out and he's like, there's people! You know, so he came over and six feet away was speaking to us and we were talking. And he said, you know, there's plenty of room inside next Sunday. Why don't you all just come inside? We just won't tell anybody. So it ended up being about six of us for about, I don't know, a month or six weeks that we would, we would sit scattered in kind of the, bit, the lobby area over there in the, in the office building while he would preach. But we were cut off from that necessary needed, vitally important person-to-person connection that we're experiencing this morning. Being able to see eyes, being able to see smiles, not covered up by a mask. That's stuff that we need, but we were separated from that. So yes, we did experience an aspect of a dispersion. So how do we deal with that? Well, James calls us to be a people who have faith in God. And that faith is being lived out today. And it was lived out in the whole year of 2020. Now that we've established the the author and the audience of the book, that we're part of that audience, let's dig in. In verse 2, we find our very first challenge. And it's no small challenge. In fact, this is the first of 50 imperatives that we find in the book of James out of 108 verses. So I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not a mathematician, but I can figure out pretty quickly that's about one imperative every other verse. <laughs> so there's a lot there, and we're going to be digging into those. But here's the first one in verse 2 of James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now this is a challenge. Because how many of us, in all honesty, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, rhetorical question, but how many of us truly face trials with joy? Our human response has to be battled through for us to be able to do that. This is different from the world's typical reaction to trials. Let me examine a very real difference here between a reaction and a response because they are very different. Reaction characteristically is led by emotions of the moment. Okay, it takes very little thought to react. Okay, which is usually a mess, which usually gets me in trouble. (laughs) And I think y'all can all identify with that at some point. Typically, we react out of emotion, past experiences, and practice. We all have those favorite emotions that we go to. And being a male, I will speak to the male experience. Characteristically, our first reaction is anger. If we're hungry, I'm mad. I mashed my thumb yesterday mowing my yard for the first time in four weeks and I was mad (laughs) when I mashed my thumb. 
I did just say, ouch. I didn't say anything else. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad God got me there. But there was anger there. Why? Because I did something stupid and I mashed my thumb. <laughs> I was mad at me. But that was the reaction. Okay, a response takes thought. Always a thought. So what God calls us to do is to respond in joy. Not a reaction. So we need to ask ourselves then, what is joy? Let's define the word. So as I'm learning to do in this modern technology, I went to my Google page. I tapped in the word joy, so yes, I Googled it. That's hard for me to say as a 65-year-old, I'm telling you it is, but I did. Okay. The very first definition was this. Great pleasure and happiness. Great pleasure and happiness. Now, how many of us that are faced with a trial respond with happiness and pleasure? Nah, that doesn't fit. And that doesn't fit this verse. It took me about 10 more hits down the page to finally find this. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And when we find joy, it's infused with comfort, wrapped in peace. It is an attitude of the heart and spirit, often synonymous with following Christ Jesus and pursuing a Christian life. Now, that would have been beautiful if that had been the very first hit. But Google's part of the world, and so it was down the page a little ways. See, joy is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. It is literally a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this list of nine fruit of the Spirit are given to us in a very specific order. And God wrote them, or had them written by Paul in that book in Galatians, specifically in that order. This is, some, this is not something that Paul just dreamed up. But God gave it to us in order. Why? Well, the first thing there is love. And we have to experience the love of God first and foremost. We experience the love of God because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross to die for our sins, to be buried, to be resurrected, to spend 40 days on the earth, then to ascend back to heaven where he sits on the right-hand side of the throne of God. Finished. The work is finished. Okay. So because of that love, that we experience from God and the love that we show to other people, we then can have joy. I would say it would be virtually impossible to have joy without that love. It's an important, it's an important step from one to the other.
as that love is developed, we find how to experience joy. And it comes from God and from his love. That's the difference. This is how we can count it all joy in our lives as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to face all sorts of trials in our life. The words following Christ Jesus in that definition on Google is all the difference for us. Amen? It is. Amen. Now God shows us the result of that faithful response to trials of various sorts. The response of joy. In verse 3, God tells us, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is the first result. This is what we can anticipate. The steadfastness and the definition of steadfastness is this. It's the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. In essence, immovable. First thing that came to mind was Boulder Meadow in Big Bend National Park. Okay, Boulder Meadow is just nothing except these massive boulders that were blown out of this volcano sometime in the past or that God created to look like they were blown out of a volcano. However he did it, I'm not questioning. Okay, But these boulders, some of them are 10 ton and even more. And to lean against it? Am I going to wiggle it? Am I going to move it? No. It's steadfast in its place. It's immovable. That's what our faith produces. It's what joy produces. is a steadfastness in us that we are unwavering. Steadfastness is used in the Bible 191 times referring to the love of God. So I'm not going to go through all, all 191 verses, but I'm going to go through one. Second Chronicles 5, the last part of verse 13, says, For he, talking about God, he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. It endures forever. To be steadfast means that we are to be unwavering, unchanging in our daily walk. It should look like this. Do your children see you in one way outside the home and another way inside the home? Okay. That's, that, that's a scary thought. Because sometimes in our humanity we think if the door is closed, nobody else is going to see me. So then in, in our home we can go back to our human responses or reactions. But God says that's not steadfast. He talks about what it is later. But being steadfast is being exactly the same in the house as you are at the house. Being steadfast means when you're in your shop by yourself and nobody can see or hear you, you respond the same way there as you do when you're in public. That's a, that's a picture of being steadfast. That's what God calls us to do. The next step in verse 4. <clears throat> Let steadfastness have its full effect. 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That steadfastness has an impact on our lives daily, tomorrow, and for all eternity. According to God's word, that is absolutely true. The full effect of steadfastness is that you may be able, you may be able, excuse me, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's abundantly clear. He didn't say you may be. He said you will be. He didn't say you can hope to be with no assurance, but he says you will be. God desires for us to have that quality in our lives that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, can we experience that in full here on June 20th, 2021? Not in full. We can experience it in part. But this is a statement of what God is speaking of we can anticipate in eternity. That we will be perfect. We're being made perfect. That's a whole other sermon. Okay? But we're being made perfect. We will be perfect in heaven. Okay? We are being made complete. We will be complete in heaven. We are learning that there's things that we do not lack. But in heaven we will lack absolutely nothing. So in part, we can experience some of those things here. But in that new heaven and that new earth, we will be those things, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now going through trials is tough. Absolutely. It's hard. Sometimes we go through something we think, it can't get any harder than this. But regardless if it gets harder or not, God is with us through that. And he says that we are to have joy. And we're to consider that joy. Because of the plans that God has. Not what we're experiencing in the moment. What we're experiencing in the moment is hard. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's an Alexander kind of day. That's not my notes and that just came to mind. So if you've read that book, great. If not, read it. It's wonderful. Um, it's a, typically it's a elementary book but hey the difference is that we can count the trial joy because of the plans that God has in Jeremiah 29 11, God says himself I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope his plans are to give us a future in heaven, this, this is looking forward to a hundred years, a thousand years, a hundred thousand years. That's our future, is with God in heaven. And the hope is what God speaks being absolutely true. Characteristically, when we use the word hope these days, we mean hope so. That's not what God's talking about here. Okay. Um, there may be some fishermen here. Okay. I'm not one of those. Okay. 
I grew up in the desert of West Texas. I, I caught rattlesnakes. It's <laughs> another story. But fishermen go out on a daily basis hoping to catch fish. But do they have any assurance that they're going to catch anything? No. They don't. Regardless of how good they are, regardless of what modern technology they have, it's dependent on whether that fish is interested in the bait and is hungry enough to bite it. Okay, and then he still don't know if he's going to get in the boat or not. But there's, it's a hope so. If you ask a fisherman, you're going to catch anything today? I hope to. You know, that's hope so. But what God says we have is an absolute assurance that what he says is going to happen. So when he says he has a, a future and a hope, it is absolute. It will happen. Now this next verse is connected without a doubt to the previous four verses. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, it will be given to him. Verse 5 is a verse that when taken out of context could lead us to believe that God wants all of us to have this wisdom and in whatever setting we can just ask for wisdom, God's going to give it to us. Now we know that wisdom comes from God. All you have to do is read Proverbs to see that very real truth. All wisdom comes from God. But if we look at this in context, what God is saying, as you're going through trials of various kinds, and you're experiencing this joy, and you're counting it joy, if you need wisdom in how to deal with this trial, ask. And I will give it to you unreservedly. Okay. And he does. As we walk through these trials, there's no doubt that as we're going through that, we're working to live in steadfastness. We don't know what to do next. So God tells us how to move, when to move, where to move. That wisdom is given to us as we ask him as we are going through this trial, whatever it may be. His promise is certain. He will give the wisdom unreservedly with a condition. This, this promise from God is conditional. And we see that condition in verse 6. But, there's the promise, then but, here comes the condition. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all, he, in all his ways. Now you may have been on the sea or in the water sometime with high wind. You understand what unstable means in that setting. Okay. One of the most unstable ways I've ever, I've ever felt was scuba diving with my two sons and one daughter-in-law. And it was a high current dive. In fact, the guy said, as we're, as we're getting geared up, whatever weight you wear, add another 12 or 15 pounds. Because salt water is buoyant, so you have to get some weight to get down. He said, but you need to get through the current as quickly as possible. 
So you jump in and you go, <laughs> go down fast. But that current was, was, was beating us. Okay? And as we got through the dive, the last thing we were to do was to go up this rope. And we had to hold on to this rope for just a, a, a safety stop about 20 feet up. And we were literally holding on to the rope, and it was, we looked like flags on that rope. That's how tough the current was, just hanging on. That felt pretty unstable, okay? And that's the picture of what an unwavering person is. Okay. He says that the unstable person, or the double-minded person, is unstable in all of his ways. Now, this is another one of the many imperatives in James. We are to ask in faith. That means that we are to be believing as we ask that God's going to give us that wisdom for that next step that we need to do. Having any doubt in our minds and hearts can cancel that out. We have to repent from that. Then God says that he will do and he will then do it. If we have no doubt. He explains why in verse 7. If we are doubting we must not suppose we will receive anything from the Lord. And he gives the label to that movement of being a double minded man. Looking to the world and looking to God. And to the world and to God. And to the world and God. There's no steadfastness there. When we do face the trials in faith and steadfastness. We have peace. We are complete. Lacking in nothing. In that moment, we ask God for the wisdom that we need in that trial, and he does that. <clears throat> now, this does not discount the fact that God wants us to be wise in all other situations. In our daily walk. But this is an imperative of how he wants us to walk in the trials of various sorts. Now, in this... In this book in James, and we're beginning to look like sheep with wool as we start putting on these truths. And that, that's adding wool, which is kind of weird in 90 degree Texas summer, but we're going to. He continues in verses 9 through 11 when he gives us another set of imperatives to consider of how we are to walk and look like wool-covered sheep. In verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises while it is scorching, with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God reveals to us through James that we should not focus on our socioeconomic status. That stands in the way of finding this joy. God points out here that both poverty and riches bring enormous pressure. It does. It may be one of the trials that we face and to focus on the world rather than Christ Jesus. Here the exhortation is for the poor to boast, or another word of that, another translation of that is to glory in Christ. To so focus on Christ that the poor label 
doesn't even fit. The lowly brother and sister will be exalted by God. We're told that over and over and over in Scripture. And then to contrast that, the rich men are exhorted to boast or glory in their humiliation. What does their humiliation look like? Looking to those who have needs and giving to them. Realizing that their wealth will not last. You can't hold on to it long enough. Because the second after, the, the millisecond after you take your last breath, all those riches are gone. They didn't count. It didn't bring that person one step closer to a relationship with God. The second, uh, the rich are called to identify with the poor in their affliction by helping them out. And if possible, without notice. We can help somebody hoping somebody will see it and we get our name in lights or whatever. But I grew, I, I grew as an adult, really under the tutelage of my father-in-law, Kendra's dad, Berkeley Stringer. And Berkeley had a very strong heart of helping people. Whether it was in the mountains when we were skiing, he drove around in his four-wheel drive suburban looking for people to pull out of the snow. And, and he did it a lot. Or he would contribute to things. But it was always with this final statement. This is just between me and you. Nobody else needed to know it. So I learned that from him. And that's what God is talking about. For the, for the rich to help others. But don't look for praise or adulation in that. The ESV study Bible makes this statement about this passage. The church is to be countercultural community, which reverses the value of the world. Now, given that context, James seems to be saying that the challenges of poverty and wealth may be one of the greatest trials that we have to go through. Because it's the first thing he brings up in this book. His immediate emphasis on the blessed status of those who remain steadfast under trial. James also echoes Jesus' warning that you cannot serve God and money at the same time. And that's whether you're poor, wishing for more, or wealthy, wishing for even more. Okay. God's got to be the focus. Now, God has a design for our lives today. He does. Just as real as the design was for the believers in the first century church that personally received this letter in James's handwriting. It's just as real today. We have the recorded word of God that shows these powerful directions for what, for what our lives should look like. How we're to be different from the world. We are to be in the world but not of the world. There's a difference. We interact, we intermingle with people in the world. We show them who Jesus is by our actions and by our words, by the things that we don't say and the things that we don't do. But our actions speak loudly. That's being in the world, being a messenger for Jesus to wear that wool as a sheep. 
so that people may ask the question, what's different about you? You, you should have had that question asked at least one time in your life. As I watch you, there's something different. What is it? That quickly Christ. That's what, that's what wearing wool is all about. The wool-wearing sheep follows the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And in doing that, the first way he called us in this book is to count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're counted all joy. How does this translate to Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, through the rest of the week, through the rest of 2021? By counting it all joy as you face trials of various sorts. That helps us then develop steadfastness in our faith. Then that steadfastness has its full effect, partially now, but ultimately when we are in that new heaven and new earth with God, we are perfect, we're complete, and we lack nothing. That's what's in store for us in heaven. As we look past 2021, as we look past all of the elements of the pandemic that we've been in and still in in parts of the world. Okay. Some places are much worse than others. But we look beyond that, to that new heaven and new earth. We know what's coming. We know what we're looking forward to. And that's what God calls us to be about. Not ignoring today. Recognizing today, but seeing what God has in store. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your direction. We thank you for your promises. And Father, we thank you for your, your commandments in our life, what we're to be. Because it's your plan that we're following, not our own. Father, I thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.